Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. Hello and welcome to the TaxCast from the Tax Justice Network, your monthly podcast on how to take back control from the super rich and powerful, and how to reprogram our economies to work for all of us. I'm the producer and host, Naomi Fowler. Hope you're doing well. Make sure you never miss an episode. Drop me an email on naomi at taxjustice.net to subscribe and you'll be the first to hear the latest TaxCast. Let's get on with it then. Coming up later. I had this kind of moment of realisation, really looking at the role I was playing of facilitating companies to gain more and more power. I started to question the whole system. I talked to competition lawyer Michelle Meager about how her eyes were opened to the dangers of letting companies get too big and form monopolies which act against our interests. If you're thinking there's only bad news around at the moment, well, perhaps I can cheer you up a bit. (laughs) We know one of the key problems in our tax systems is corporate secrecy. Corporations don't want to tell us which countries they do their genuine business in. Well, the EU is edging slowly closer towards public country-by-country reporting rules for multinationals. Here's Olivia Lally from Eurodad in Brussels. Public country-by-country reporting would allow everyone, including citizens, decision-makers and journalists, to see information about where corporations do business and what they pay in tax in each country they operate. In fact, we already have public country-by-country reporting for the banking sector in the EU, and it's been working well. Research shows that it's discouraged banks from shifting their profits to low-tax jurisdictions. In 2016, after the Panama Papers tax scandal, the European Commission published a legislative proposal for public country-by-country reporting for all large multinationals across all sectors. And yet we still haven't had an agreement on what the final rules could look like because the proposal has been stuck in the Council of EU member states. The good news is that recent political developments mean we've got a majority of EU member states ready to agree on a position. So... In order to get to an agreement, the presidency of the EU Council needs to put the proposal on the agenda. But the current presidency, Germany, has been dragging its heels, and it's yet to confirm if it will hold the debate. The current proposal has a lot of weaknesses and loopholes, so we need to do two things. Firstly, we need Germany to bring the file to the agenda so that EU member states can finally agree on their position. And secondly, and really importantly, we need members of the European Parliament and our governments to support ambitious rules that introduce full country-by-country reporting that is public for all countries without any loopholes or any exceptions. Citizens can help with this. You can contact your government and make sure that this is discussed in an upcoming council meeting in November and make sure that your country supports full public country-by-country reporting. That's Olivia Lally from Eurodad in Brussels. Austria changed its position to support public country-by-country reporting because of public pressure there, so we know it works. We're going to talk to John Christensen now of the Tax Justice Network for his take on this month. Okay, John, so this month we've had more leaks from within the global banking industry showing us how blatantly the major banks of the world are disregarding rules about opening their doors to dirty money. The thin send files, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. But first, let's talk about a proposed bill in New York State, which is gathering momentum at the moment, that would strike at the heart of the massive economically damaging speculative trades that go on there. New York has a staggering amount of what they call churning and the bill is proposing a financial transactions tax on some of the trades done on New York's stock exchange so really important New York is in dire straits financially they're cutting back on teachers and all sorts of essential services they have a huge deficit millions of US Americans are have lost their jobs or are on the verge of losing their jobs, on the verge of being evicted, lots of people in terrible trouble there, losing their healthcare access too. So this couldn't be a more critical time to do something really visionary, could it? And a financial transactions tax would slow right down some of that really unhelpful financial activity, like some of the mad high-frequency trading that they do in nanoseconds. For this bill, they need 68 sponsors. So far, they've got 37. If they get 68 sponsors, the House would then have to take a vote on it. Yeah, as you say, 37 members of the New York State Legislature are sponsoring 
a bill to support a financial transaction tax in that state. Now, historically, New York State has applied a financial transactions tax at a rate of 0.25%. And it's still there on the statute book. But Wall Street lobbying has led to a situation where the revenues are actually rebated right back to Wall Street. So they're not actually collecting the money. But you can see why there might be a very strong interest in the financial transactions tax in New York State at the present. The state faces a $9 billion deficit just for this year. They face the prospect of having to lay off 22,000 public workers because they don't have enough money to pay their salaries. And at the same time, Wall Street stock markets have reached record levels and turnover on the markets is also at record levels. Arguably, I think, because another bubble is building up, this time in the digital economy stocks. So New York is a leading financial centre and the potential for using a financial transaction tax for raising additional revenue is, to put it mildly, significant. We've seen figures suggesting that $4.4 trillion of transactions have taken place in New York just in the month of August. Let's talk about the transactions they want to include in this financial transactions tax. Who makes the money from these? Why would we want to disincentivise these things? Right, so look, a financial transactions tax is a tax on selected financial transactions. Uh, Normally the tax is set at a very low rate. Uh, For example, the stamp duty in the United Kingdom in London is levied at a rate of just 0.5% of the value of the transaction uh, and in, in, in Hong Kong where they have a similar duty it's set at 0.3% which is paid jointly by sellers and the buyers. A financial transactions tax could be designed to cover either a very wide range of financial transactions or a very narrow range of financial transactions and the types of transactions it could cover includes all currency, in other words foreign exchange uh, transactions, sales of shares, sales of bonds, sales of options, sales of all types of derivatives. To give you a sense of the scale of these markets, the daily turnover on the global markets for foreign exchange, for example, is of the order of $6.6 trillion a day. Uh, And if we look at the swaps and derivative instruments markets, again, it's very similar, $6.5 trillion turnover every single day. Now, just think about how much money would be raised if you applied a financial transaction tax at a rate of 0.25%. Now, in most cases, the financial transaction tax is used to raise revenue. But many economists, uh, and that includes the very famous Lord John Maynard Keynes, think of the primary role of a financial transaction tax is to curb speculative trading, which is very destabilising. And this would lead to less churning on the money markets. And by the way, for listeners, churning is a way for financial intermediaries to increase their fees and their commissions by making unnecessary trades using their clients' money. So the more more they churn the market, the more they make in fees and commissions. Right. And and just briefly on the European Union, the actual budget is not being voted through at the moment because many nations are insisting that a financial transactions tax be included in that EU budget before it goes forward. So it's quite an interesting revival going on and a lot of support. Yeah, we've been seeing the financial transaction tax move gradually up the political agenda since the 2008 banking crisis. And clearly this year's COVID pandemic has boosted interest as governments have been forced to massively increase their health expenditures. Since 2008, France and Italy have both adopted financial transaction taxes at the national level. And Spain is pushing forward with its own financial transaction tax. So it's moving forward. And at a larger scale, and this is very exciting actually, Germany currently holds the presidency of the European Union. And they'll hold it till the end of this year. And they've expressed their commitment to the introducing a financial transaction tax at the level of the European Union. The current uh, German finance minister, Olaf Scholz, who, by the way, is standing for election in the German presidency, elections coming up, he has committed himself to this project, which has overwhelming cross-party support in the European Parliament. So that's all very exciting. There's political will to adopt a financial transaction tax, and, and it's very live in the European Union. Right, and going back to New York, it's such a no-brainer for New York, but there's so much lobbying against it. 
Yes. It's, it's really important to stress that the financial transaction tax fulfills most of the criteria, if not all of the criteria, for, for good taxes. It's progressive. It's easy to collect. It's not so easy to avoid. And it could raise substantial sums of additional revenue. It might reduce speculative trading and reduce the risk of the herd mentality, which accompanies so much of this kind of churning and market financial market trading, that the herd mentality can accelerate booms and bust cycles and exaggerate market instability. And a financial transaction tax might actually reduce that, a good thing. Now, another thing which you hear, I've heard quite a bit, both in New York and in London, is that a financial transaction tax could potentially lead to financial intermediaries leaving New York or leaving London. But I think the answer to that criticism, if it is a legitimate criticism rather than just a lobbying tactic, is you just cannot be serious. Because no one in their right mind is going to seriously leave, you know, one of the world's leading marketplaces, New York, and shift them away across the Hudson into Jersey just because of the possibility of the imposition of a 0.25% transactions tax. It's just not serious, because New York is one of the world-leading clusters of legal and financial expertise. These are really exciting times for supporters of a financial transaction tax, and this might be the moment when progress can be built on the back of both pressure within the European Union and New York to bring the FTT financial transaction tax finally onto the agenda. Yeah, and it's such a small amount as well. It's such a tiny tax, but the implications of it are just so, so big for the rest of the world. Um, let's talk about the FinCEN files. Leaked documents from the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network in the United States. They're the people that are supposed to enforce the law on behalf of the US Treasury. That includes any transaction in the world that involves dollars. So that's a lot of transactions. The leaks of putting $2 trillion worth of potentially dodgy transactions on display. It shows us, yet again, the dangers of allowing businesses, in this case banks, to get so big they feel that they can disregard governments, disregard laws, or they can pressure for laws to be written in order for them to abuse their power. Um, we need, we all need good robust financial systems, but instead of finance serving us, we're ending up too often with governments serving finance. I mean, look at the lobbying that's going to line up to try to defeat these efforts on financial transaction taxes in New York, for example. And none of these major banks in these latest leaks are losing their licences. Yet again, we have to say that these banks should be broken up because they're too big. This is all really dangerous for democracy, isn't it? Yeah, I think that is the key issue. It is dangerous for democracy. And in better times, this story would be so massive that it would be dominating the news cycles day after day. And we'd have had politicians queuing up at television studios to argue the case for prosecuting bankers and strengthening financial regulation and pushing back against this awesome monopolist power of the banking lobbies and also the legal lobbies, which I, I would add. Uh, but alas, these are not the best of times. And political leaders and the political parties in both the UK and the US are themselves implicated in dark money flows coming from Russia and elsewhere. And whilst they might huff and puff a bit on camera, we can expect little or nothing in the way of useful political action to come out of the FinCEN story. Now, the story originates, as you say, from a leaked document coming out of the US Treasury, because the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network is actually a, a treasurer at the Department of the US Treasury. And it's the part of the US Treasury that's responsible for investigating financial crimes involving every use of the dollar. So it's not just dollars being transacted in the United States itself, but dollars being transacted anywhere else in the world, even if the players have no connection to the United States. And for the greater part, the leak has involved documents which are known as suspicious activity reports, generally known as SARS. And in, in a dim and distant past, I used to be quite involved in suspicious activity reports, which are filed in total confidentiality by bankers, by law firms and by all other financial intermediaries, or they, they should be filed by all other financial intermediaries. What the FinCEN story reveals is how financial intermediaries have helped their criminal clients to launder their money through the offshore circuits. And some of the banks involved, for example, include 
global giants like J.P. Morgan and Barclays and HSBC. Yes, I feel like we're watching the same story over and over again. I mean, even the press releases the banks put out in their own defence seem to be the same lines. You know, this is all in the past. We uphold all applicable laws. We have robust systems. Um, but really, the banks are kind of burying FinCEN in these suspicious activity reports, and uh, they really are set up to fail. Um, Nate Sibley of the Kleptocracy Initiative, he tweeted, before we slag off FinCEN, he says, quote, Remember the tiny task agency is effectively tasked with policing the integrity of the global financial system, and it has a budget of just $120 million. That's less than the US government accidentally sends in benefits to federal employees each year. <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? I'd just like to pick up on these grotesque press releases coming out of the bank. You know, I've spent my whole career looking at dirty money flows and at the offshore financial world, and I've been hearing these pathetic excuses about, yeah, that's in the past, but everything's changed. I've been hearing that for 40 years. Yes, the change has happened, but they're so superficial and compliance is so weak, and the regulators have been undermined to such an extent that the whole thing is nothing more than a fig leaf, an exercise in window dressing, and as far as most banks are concerned, and I've heard this from compliance officers working at the biggest banks in London, they just say the whole thing is just a charade. Yeah, over 3,000 UK companies are named in the FinCEN files, and that's more than any other country. In fact, FinCEN sees the UK as a higher risk jurisdiction, just like Cyprus uh, is categorised the same way. So, you know, UK is right there in the middle of it all. And, and, and I think the link with Cyprus is an interesting one, and I think it's perfectly reasonable to make that association. Remember, Cyprus for decades has been kind of the starting off point for money coming out of the former Soviet Union before the collapse of the Soviet Union, huge wads of money were coming out of the Soviet Union through Cyprus and then on into the banking system. And now, alas, we can see that London has been reduced to that level and I don't think it's an unreasonable comparison to make. The problem here is that even if a banker has really strong grounds for believing that a client is engaged in criminal activity, there's no obligation to do anything other than to file a suspicious activity report to the relevant authorities and then just continue as if there's nothing wrong going on. And the FinCEN story reveals how ineffective anti-money laundering measures have been as a tool for detecting crimes. The FinCEN story should tell us that financial crime is not a story about a few bad apples. It's systemic, especially in the world of offshore finance which is dominated by Britain and by the United States and big monopolist companies. Thanks, John. Now it's time for the TaxCast special feature. We've been warning for such a long time now that the growth of monopolies like Facebook, Amazon, Big Pharma, Big Agriculture are a threat to genuinely fair and decent business practices. They're a threat to tax justice and they're a threat to democracy. We shouldn't stand by and allow our economies to be hijacked. This month, there's a new book out that says it all. Competition is killing us. How big business is harming our society and planet and what to do about it. I highly recommend this book. It links so many things we all really care about in an effortless and fascinating read. I'm talking to the author of the book, Michelle Meager. You were once a big believer in free markets and then you write about how you realise as a competition lawyer that free markets aren't really free, fair competition isn't really fair. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of have been through a little bit of a transformation in my way of thinking. So I started out as a teenage conservative. I was a huge fan of Thatcher. And I, I believed in free markets from a kind of quite idealistic perspective of absorbing this idea that I think is actually quite widespread, that as long as markets are free and competition is fair, then um, all the benefits of capitalism will be spread as widely as possible and you know, we'll all be better off for it and that companies will be competing to serve our needs. You know, meanwhile, the state will kind of provide a separate role and that therefore these systems will be able to work in harmony. Can you tell me a bit about your life working as a competition lawyer? 
And I was working as a competition lawyer in the city, which means that I was advising big companies mostly on their mergers predominantly. So, um, you know, if, if two companies want to merge, they have to get an approval from the authorities if they are big enough or if they meet certain thresholds. So we were helping them to do that. And that was all still in the system that was designed to you know, ensure that prices are as low as possible for consumers and that competition is free. And what I realised, kind of had this light bulb moment really, where I was working on a particular deal. It was a merger between the fizzy drinks company Britvic and another fizzy drinks company, AG Bar, that makes products like a Iron Brew. And I had this moment of realisation, of understanding that if all we were looking at in this process of whether we were going to approve this deal was whether prices were going to be as low as possible, but that's not really serving the interests of the public at large. Um, you know, we don't really want fizzy drinks to be as cheap as possible. And once I had that realisation, really looking at the role I was playing in that system of facilitating companies to gain more and more power, I started to question the whole system and the role I was playing. And that's what I ended up focusing on in my book. It's this question why does capitalism, why does the system really concentrate wealth and power into so few hands but spread its harms so widely? I started to look at how we treat mergers, how we treat monopolies, and increasingly there's been evidence in the recent years that markets are hugely monopolised. Actually, markets are, are increasingly growing concentrated right under the noses of regulators who are subscribing to this this kind of idealistic view of free market competition that I had. Right. Another interesting thing is that you, you write about your Bangladeshi roots and how you believed you could address the world's inequalities through regulating capitalism. And uh, the leader of the Illinois Black Panthers said once, uh, we don't fight fire with fire best, we think you fight fire with water best. We're not going to fight capitalism with capitalism, with black capitalism. I've come across ideas about black empowerment by participating or championing the same kind of damaging practices so many times. Um, how do you now feel that you can best address inequalities? I, I know that's a big question. <laughs> yes, yeah. My kind of hope or contribution towards that is to really call into question this idea of competition. The idea is that monopolies are killing us. We want more competition. Actually, you know, the lack of competition is the problem. When you're trying to challenge an existing paradigm, the tools of that paradigm are unlikely to help you in that fight. And I'm trying to draw, you know, a question mark over our whole conception of competition and, you know, this assumption that that is the only way that the market or that society and the economy can operate. And I suppose when I'm talking about corporate power, I'm talking about all of those centralising forces within the current market system that allow you know, wealth and power to snowball into the hands of, of a few. So when I'm thinking about inequality, you know, we can talk about empowering other groups, both within capitalism in, in a kind of immediate sense, but also looking at things other than competition, you know, cooperative, collective models of structuring things. And uh, an insight from the Black Lives Matter movement, you read their manifesto, it talks repeatedly about collective action, collective benefit. We should be inserting democratic, truly broad-based influence into all of the structures of power, and that includes into the market, into the corporation or companies as a vehicle for wealth creation. You know, we can't trust through some kind of blind faith that companies competing to maximise profits will be benefiting society more widely. I think that's been largely debunked and, and not just not just by me. But the question is, you know, what, what should we do instead? And my proposal is that we need to, you know, identify sites of power within the market economy and insert the power of the currently disempowered into those structures. Yeah. Ultimately, if you want to change systems, you have to democratise them. And that is such a key element that's missing out of so much business. I'm thinking about, you know, cooperative models, staff who uh, are represented on boards, who have a say in how companies are run, who would have more of a long-term perspective. Uh, there is there's so much work done on this area of democratising the way business is done. A hundred percent. I absolutely agree. And I think that it's not just about, 
you know, democratising companies or power in that way, but also democratising the way we regulate companies. You know, there should be more input and more consultation of different stakeholders when regulators are kind of approaching some of these questions. You know, you get the same experts on the business side, you get the same kind of consultants and economic experts and lobbyists and so on presenting their view. There's not really a coalition to present the other side. So I think that increasing the influence of stakeholders over regulatory processes is also a a huge part of this. And you talk a lot about the damage of shareholder capitalism. Um, How would you characterise shareholder capitalism? Why is it so damaging in your view? This idea of shareholder value, shareholder capitalism, which really has been embraced by the business world and to a large extent by the kind of legal world that supports it, boils down to this idea that the responsibility of directors of a company is to maximise profits for the shareholders. It embodies all these other ideas like a false idea that the shareholders are the owners of the company, that they are the most important stakeholders, but the true costs of that business aren't captured by the price, by that pure transaction that happens between the business and its customer. Um, obvious example is, um, you know, the burning of fossil fuels. The price of oil does not include the catastrophic damage that is being done to our ecosystem and to our environment. And so those costs are another good way to maximise profits because there's all costs that you're not having to pay for what is you know the underlying business that is producing your profits and of course those two things are linked you see many of the worst abusers of environment of labor standards and so on have some kind of monopoly power and so it's looking at those other ways that this idea of shareholder value really motivates companies to find every kind of loophole in the economic system to make a quick buck off of that so yeah how do we actually introduce the true costs of these cheap products, like the things we get cheap stuff from Amazon delivered to our door, you know, people could say, what's the problem with that? How do we introduce the true costs of those things into the marketplace? It's a huge problem. I think that people are trying to attack it from all different angles. You know, one is there's a lot of work to be done in accounting that looks at how do you account for all of the different costs? Can we require companies to report on all of these different costs so that it is in effect priced into their share price? It forms part of their balance sheet. Um, the, The angles that I come at it are really from a kind of regulatory perspective. So how can we force companies to operate at the standards that we would expect them to and that's kind of twofold one is directly by regulating them having the rules that mean that you can't just um, you know pollute and you can't just abuse your workers and so on but also through if you take a kind of anti-monopoly lens and you consider the potential for regulatory capture if you allow companies to get too big they're able to control the regulations that they are subject to then you get into another way of actually making sure that companies follow the law is to make sure that they don't get big enough to ignore the law so that's another way to make sure that some of these costs are are internalized and then i say the kind of final way that i really look at it is If you create greater representation and greater challenge to the power of companies that are currently able to act in this way, then you you will see a change in the way that they make decisions. If you have an environmental representative or an employee representative at board level, that is in its own way an internalisation of some of those concerns into the very decision-making mechanism of the company. Equally, if we find ways to encourage and support other ways of doing business, whether it's through cooperative business or or even at a stakeholder level, whether it's by encouraging unionisation or collective bargaining amongst otherwise kind of small individual small businesses, collectivization amongst them, that would help them kind of challenge the Amazons in the world and show that there is another way of doing business, but also kind of allow them to offer that other option in challenge to to the version that's offered by, by the Amazons of the world. Right, and you warn in the book, and I'm quoting, we may lose control of big companies completely. Tax is so closely related to democracy, isn't it? And um, 
you know, for example, the Tax Justice Network thinks corporate taxation will become a thing of the past if we don't get on top of this issue about how big monopolies influence governments and by influence with governments undermining democracy. Yeah, it's a really important, a hugely important aspect of all of this, the different ways that monopolistic companies are able to shape their environment and really rig the whole game to their advantage. If you've got uh, the apples of the world that don't have to pay the same corporate tax level as their competitors because they have preferential agreements with the Irish government, uh, as an example, and they're able to kind of cite their IP wherever is most kind of tax efficient, then that's not going to be free competition or fair competition because you've already got a company that's essentially at a huge competitive advantage. But also there's the other huge part of it that you've, that you've mentioned, which is the influence that can be bought and that really shapes so much of the economy that with tax just being one part of that, you know, in terms of companies being able to shape these rules to their best advantage. You, you say also in the book that corporations have $19 trillion sitting on their balance sheets as savings and it's time to put that money to work. What do you mean by that? When people say that we can't afford, you know, the kind of measures that we would need to make for, you know, a Green New Deal, for, you know, combating climate change. Actually, companies are hoarding cash and sitting on enormous war chests of money. We're in a situation where there is this enormous amount of money sitting there and currently the way that companies are seeing that money is, you know, can I use this money to buy up flailing competitors, particularly those that have been made vulnerable, you know, by the economic crisis that's coming or by the kind of pandemic itself? Um, Can I use that money to, you know, buy influence and, you know, return profits to shareholders that way? Can I use that money to issue share buybacks, you know, buy back shares of shareholders, returning cash to them, but also in the meantime, driving up the share price? And can I use that money to give out dividends and do that in some kind of tax efficient way? You know, we can afford to do all of the things that we need to do to make the world safer, um, more sustainable, more equal. The money is there. And the question is, who is in charge of that money or what rules have we placed on that money? And currently, the rule that we've placed is, you know, shareholder value and profit maximisation. And that money will only ever be used in that way unless we manage to find ways to repurpose it. I've been talking to Michelle Meager. Her book, Competition is Killing Us, How Big Business is Harming Our Society and Planet and What to Do About It, is published by Penguin. You can find the link in the show notes. That's it from us for this month from the TaxCast from the Tax Justice Network. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next month. Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, this week is one for the books. As a grand jury refused to charge any of the police officers responsible for killing Breonna Taylor with her murder, the president declined to commit to a peaceful transition of power should he lose the November election, and states continued their plans to reopen, even as cases of COVID-19 are starting back up again. The news often feels overwhelming, and overwhelm doesn't generally encourage action. News media may not control what happens in the world, but the way they show it to us has a real impact on how we feel about it and on what we think we can do about it. Laura Flanders, the original host of Counterspin and the former director of the Women's Desk at FAIR, practices a kind of journalism meant to encourage engagement, not just in the stories it tells, but in the people that tell them. The Laura Flanders Show is now moving to a bigger platform. It will be airing on public TV stations around the country. Apropos of that, we'll talk with her about what she hopes the show can achieve. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. (music) 
Wildfires continue to devastate the West Coast. 3.6 million acres have burned since August 15th in California alone, one of those increasingly commonplace new records. And both the Arctic and Antarctica are exhibiting dramatic ice loss. Given how little time experts say we have to prevent irreversible damage from climate change, this year's election is a crucial one for the future of the planet. And climate disruption remains a top priority for many voters. That ought to mean the climate crisis would be a central focus of the presidential debates, the main opportunity for most voters to hear the candidates questioned about their positions on major policy issues. But, as Julie Holler reminds at FAIR.org, if the past is indication, the journalists who moderate those debates won't feel the same sense of urgency. In 2016, not a single question was asked about climate change. Zero questions were asked in 2012 as well. As FAIR's Adam Johnson wrote in 2016, in over eight hours of presidential debates spanning four years, there were only four utterances of the term climate change on the most important political stage all by Hillary Clinton, all in passing, all entirely unsolicited. Prior to this election season's Democratic primary debates, environmental activists pressed the DNC to hold a single-issue debate on the climate crisis. DNC Chair Tom Perez rebuffed them, claiming he had the utmost confidence that the subject would be discussed in the debates early and often. But the moderators failed miserably to center climate, devoting more questions to the utterly useless topic of electability than to, you know, galloping environmental devastation. Holler noted last November that of the climate questions moderators did ask, many focused on the idea that major action on climate disruption, that's to say action commensurate with the threat, is not realistic, or that it threatens people's freedoms to do things like drive gas-guzzling cars or eat meat. Senator Bernie Sanders had highlighted climate in weeks leading up to the debates, but he didn't get a single unique question on it. The only other candidates in the debates who got higher than a B-plus from Greenpeace for their climate plans, Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker, each got one unique question. Since the media hosts had ruled that follow-ups or handoff prompts were limited to 30 or 45 seconds, that meant that the candidates with the most ambitious climate plans were given criminally little time to explain them. The recent media sponsor town halls with Donald Trump and Joe Biden haven't inspired much hope. In CNN's September 17th town hall with Biden, three participants were selected to ask him questions about the environment. Two of them pushed Biden to endorse anti-environmental positions, one in favor of fracking and one against, quote, over-regulation of farms via climate policies. Both of those voices selected to represent the public are actually very much out of step with public opinion. Americans oppose fracking by a large majority, and majorities also believe the government is doing too little to protect the environment, not too much. In ABC's town hall with Trump September 15th, Zero questions were asked about climate. And indeed, as Holler went to press with her post, Fox News's Chris Wallace, the moderator for the first debate to be held September 29th in Cleveland, announced the topics he intends to cover, and climate is not one of them. The presidential and vice presidential debates ought to give voters a chance to see the candidates attempt to explain and defend their positions on the most important issues of the day. The coronavirus, healthcare, and the economy will shortly be prominent as they should be. But the climate crisis is an economic, healthcare, and human rights issue of inestimable import. And voters know it, with poll after poll showing it among their top concerns. Media gatekeepers who sideline the issue in debates might be pleasing corporate sponsors. They are outright failing the public. On FAIR.org, you can find contact information for the moderators of the upcoming debates, should you wish to contact them and tell them to make the climate crisis a key focus. Finally, media's war games approach to the election is dumb, for many reasons, one of which is it seems to make reporters misplace fundamental values. Hence the website Axios's headline description of statehood for Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. as, quote, Democrats' Armageddon option. Close quote, because the voters it would enfranchise are likely to vote Democratic. 
Except when you take off the simplistic zero-sum beltway goggles, there is, as Judd Legum of Popular Information noted on Twitter, quote, no reason why millions of taxpaying Americans, many of whom are people of color, should be denied representation in Congress, close quote. So, yeah, Armageddon makes a bold headline. But really, wouldn't democracy be the hotter take? You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. It doesn't matter how many channels you have. If you sift through them, you will find lamentably little journalism that isn't mainly stale frameworks and rhetoric turning round on itself. News is press releases from the powerful. Analysis is white men espousing variants on the status quo. At a historical moment demanding bold change, corporate news media serve as blinders, returning us again and again to the trodden path. That insularity, that top-downism, is not a quality of journalism itself, of course, but only as it's overwhelmingly practiced in the media we mainly see. Seek out new media, and you may also find a new way of doing journalism. Different sources, different stories, different ideas, and most fundamentally, a different relationship to power and to change. It's almost enough to make you want to get out of bed in the morning. That's what we're going to talk about now with journalist Laura Flanders. Longtime listeners will know Laura as the original host and producer of Counterspin. We co-hosted for many years. She now hosts The Laura Flanders Show, which as of very recently has expanded its reach and will be airing on PBS stations from Arizona to Vermont. She joins us now by phone from Sullivan County, New York. Welcome back to Counterspin, Laura Flanders. Oh, thank you, Janine. Yes, get out of bed in the morning. We can do this. You know, we need all the help we can to do it, though, and that includes new visions. So let's start right there. I mean, the Laura Flanders show itself is not new, but it is coming to a new audience, for which we say congratulations. How do you talk about the vision for the show? What is it that you set out to do each week? Well, we say it's the TV and radio program where the people who say it can't be done take a backseat to the people who are doing it, from Jim Hightower, with his permission, I might say. And I think that about sums it up. We are, some people say, you know, the solutions of tomorrow today. Basically, what we're saying is the reality that we live in. The reality that we live in today is not immutable. It is the product of choices, of power dynamics, of um, motivations of certain sectors over others a set of priorities that we can shift, and not just in some abstract, pie-in-the-sky theoretical thinking, but actually right here, right now, we try as much as possible to talk about and to report on examples of shifting power in the worlds of arts, politics, and economics. So whether that's land trusts or worker-owned co-ops or community wealth building in cities like Preston in the UK or even right here in Sullivan County, it's really trying to say, look, you, there may be experts in your neighborhood that you can team up with and make a real difference. Not to say we don't, you know, don't need government power, too. We do. I sometimes say we can do bottom-up change about as far as our bottom, and then we need help from government. But we try to sort of hit that sweet spot of inspiring people to make change and also to realize what more change needs to be made. Well, we literally have pundits arguing about whether something is possible that is actually happening somewhere else. And it can be so frustrating, which is why I love where the people who say it can't be done take a backseat to the people who are doing it. But it's not just a what, of course, it's a who. Media don't just tell us what to think, they tell us who's worth listening to, who's an expert. And regular, quote unquote, people are generally not considered experts, including on their own lives. They may get to say, I'm poor, or we want police to stop harming our community, but they aren't usually asked for more than a soundbite on their ideas about how to change things. They don't lead the piece, and that's something else that's different is who, who are the voices in the show? Well, you know, I learned so much of what I do and how I think from you all and our, our time at FAIR together, and I think even back then we used to say, Look, the corporate media is about directing public eyeballs and ears to corporations, to advertisers. And our independent media is about introducing people to each other. 
our democracy and the way we cover it tends to cast our glance always upward. Like, who's at the top of the ticket? Where is the powerful and what are they doing? As opposed to laterally towards one another. It's like, how do we together make change? And where are some examples of exactly that? So that is exactly what we try to do on the show. It's to give people some sense of how change happens, you know, what goes into the pudding and what people can do to change that. I think my entire job, Janine, frankly, is introducing people to each other. And that's what we try to do on the show. Well, just to look at the guest list for the show on COVID in a rural community, you've got an assemblywoman, a labor organizer, a cheese worker and her daughter, a public health director, a school lunch manager, musicians. I mean, beyond the the new content that they bring, it says something to put these people on the same plane as one another, as it were, instead of what we usually see, which is power means the expert who's in studio, and those outside of power, well, they're the colorful background or the soundbite or the B-roll. You know, that's a great example. I love this COVID in the country episode. You know, I'm a journalist, as you are, and when COVID hit, and you know, my partner got COVID, we'd moved out of the city. We settled down in this little country cabin I've had for 30 years, but never thought of living in full time. And after about a month, I was like, oh, okay, now what? You know, what's happening right around here? And that was when I reached out to a friend of mine who works in community radio at WJFF here at Jeffersonville. It used to be hydro powered community radio in the Southwest Catskills. And She knew lots of folks, had some idea what was going on. We teamed up together. I figured out I could do reporting with an iPhone on a very long selfie stick and a face mask. And we went out to talk to people about what the heck was going on because I looked around and realized even though the national news, the the network news every night was bringing me the news from Washington and New York mostly, a little bit of L.A. occasionally – what we were hearing was that rural America wasn't really feeling this pandemic. It was an urban thing. Not true. This little tiny county, which is just 100 miles out of New York, but is the sixth most rural congressional district in the country, the incidence rate, the number of cases per head of population, was actually higher than Manhattan. So I was like, well, we were all trying to figure out why that was. And when you looked at the geographic distribution of COVID positivity, it concentrated in the towns that had the largest Latinx population, the populations that were working in poultry plants and meat packers and dairies and and you name it. So it was there that we focused. And sure enough, as soon as we started doing that, we found people at the Rural and Migrant Ministry who were working their hearts off to get masks to workers and information to workers. And along with the information about health, the information about signing onto the census, it really invaluable kind of organizing that paid off quickly. The rates started coming down and really educated the people who lived here about how they, just like the big cities, were dependent on a very precarious, underpaid pool of fairly exploited labor, many of them undocumented, many of them female. I think it was a wake-up call for the people of Sullivan County. But there's one other little bit of the story, Janine, which you would like, which is that as I did this work, I discovered, as if I didn't know it before, just how important local media can be. It was the local radio station that was reporting these local town hall meetings that were being recorded on Facebook Live by a little guy in the town hall who was holding up his iPhone to the health commissioner as she spoke every week. It was a local newspaper, in this case the River Reporters, the Sullivan County Democrats, who were reporting on what was happening. If people here had relied on the news from New York City, um, they would never have known what was going on, and they wouldn't have known what to do to look after one another. And then the final little coda for the story is when we talk about an ecosystem, we put together this episode and we send out a press release to the local press and who should respond saying she wants to write about the episode, but a woman, Isabel Braverman, who had interned for me when we started the show years ago. She worked with Jeff Cohen at the Park Center for Independent Media and Ithaca College. And I just thought, okay, there you have it. There's our ecosystem in a nutshell. Independent media makers, independent media outlets, print and radio and TV coming together to create some echo effect for an important story that was being missed by how many thousands of well-paid media outlets that are just 100 miles away. Well, another thing that sets the show apart that you touched on earlier is its international scope. You know, we, we are 
one world, but corporate media hide that fact like it's their job, you know, and their world looks kind of like the board in a game of risk, you know. But on your show, it's not like, ooh, field trip to Europe, you know. It's, it's just that if you're going to tell a story on worker cooperatives, well, that could be a story from upstate New York, or it could be a story from Spain. You're, you're just choosing to ignore some kinds of map lines. And, and does that, too, come from a particular approach to journalism? Well, the Spain story arose from the fact that I thought, hmm, where could we tell a story? You know, what, one thing we often do in the U.S. commercial media and the corporate media is divide our economic stories from our political stories. So you have the economy over here, and if you have some human interest, cutesy story about a co-op, it's on page, you know, B39. But the political story is some other page, and the two never meet. And activism often splits itself in that way, too, that you have people working on the economy and people working on politics. And I, I was thinking about the coming election of 2020 and thinking, hmm, a lot of our progressive folks are going to be focusing on the electoral. But what about this economic development story that we need to maintain you know, a drumbeat on because the economy doesn't go away? And gosh, it certainly hasn't gone away, away as an issue this year. Where could we look at the relationship of cooperative economics and solidarity economics as a way of resisting dictatorship, authoritarian government, far-right autocracy. You know, I didn't think it was, let's say, inappropriate or irrelevant mm -hmm. to look at that question as we approach 2020. And so Spain was the obvious example because it was there that the world's largest work-around co-ops grew up as a way for the sort of occupied region of the Basque country to survive under Europe's longest dictatorship, the Franco dictatorship that followed the Spanish Civil War. So they were a great model of how solidarity economics and cooperation helped communities survive that leadership in, in Madrid, in the capital city, had no interest in, in employing and giving health care to and caring for any of it. Um, it seems sort of strangely relevant, Janine, to our experience here in the U.S., and I was really lucky to be able to do that story with the help of the Democracy Collaborative in, in Washington and the Beneficial State Bank, who helped me go on a delegation. I guess what I want to underscore is just as on the story about COVID in a rural county, you could have told the story with some politicians, local politicians, albeit, you know, and an epidemiologist and, you know, put some farm workers in the background, you know, and you could have on the worker cooperative story said, oh, yeah, that's a very interesting story, but that's Spain. You know, why would I tell that to a U.S. audience? It, it seems to me that you're overwriting some of the rules of quote-unquote traditional or, or corporate journalism when you do things like that, when you elevate sources that aren't generally elevated and when you compare internationally, you know, as though that were a relevant thing to do. Yeah, well, it goes back to that introducing people to each other thing. I mean, you're completely right. I think we are given news from abroad with a very clear emphasis on this is foreign no relevance to you, you know, when in fact so many of these stories are examples of places and people not unlike ourselves doing things that we could well do likewise if we just got to hear about them. We have another episode coming up from Preston in the UK, one of the deindustrialized cities of the Industrial Revolution textile world, that after many years of trying to you know, tempt big corporations to come and give them a few jobs in exchange for paying no taxes for a long time and then, you know, shuttling profits far away to, in this case, London or corporate headquarters elsewhere. Uh, local government said, enough of that. What if we kept our resources, such as they are, right here and used our government money, our city money, to invest in local businesses, local contractors, procure locally, and sure, we may not be the wealthiest people in the world, but we can support ourselves and support one another if we're not busily trying to tempt Walmart in. And that's exactly what they did. And again, a model that is, is relevant, is interesting. They speak English. I mean, this, is, this does not have to be a foreign story. And I, I also think, you know, when you talk about who gets to be an expert, it is always true, almost always true. Poor people, women of color, women people of color, immigrants, people who don't speak English. In the U.S. corporate media, they only ever get to be like the color. You know, what, what you used to say at fair about being, you know, wildlife footage with your fist in the air. Women especially, I think, we get to have experiences. 
oh, my uterus hurts, you know, but we don't get to have expertise. Well, I actually am, you know, a gynecologist with expertise. With I know what I'm talking about. Or better than that, I'm a Supreme Court justice. You know what I mean? It's it's different. Who gets to be an expert? And I think that's one of the fundamental things we try to shift on our program. Well, I've asked you this before. What's so funny about peace, love, and solutions journalism? You know, by which <laughs> I don't mean carrying water for the latest Bill Gates scheme, but just what we're talking about: forward-looking journalism that takes human rights and justice as actual imperatives as opposed to value-neutral things that some people disagree about. Now, to some people, that might just sound like journalism, but somehow it has a reputation as being soft or uncritical or else not objective, too advocatory or something. Why can't we say solutions journalism without making people giggle somehow? It's an experiment, I will say. I mean, you've said it many times on this program, and huge props to you for maintaining Counterspin. It's one of my go-to podcasts every week. You regularly point out that we don't have a free market of choice in our media when it comes to what show would we prefer to watch, because there often isn't anybody in the you know DEFG section of the, the choice spectrum. This is an experiment, our program. We are also told people like drama. They like the cat fight. They like partisan politics. We're offering none of that. Will people watch? Well, we'll find out. I think there's never been a better climate for programming that's forward-looking, not altogether partisan, really about alternative models. I mean, we have just lived through, we are living through, the greatest economic depression in our lifetime. We've got, you know, 30 to 40 percent of all the jobs that have been lost since COVID unlikely to return. We have one in four restaurants that are closed now, probably going to stay closed, and 14 million kids in food insecure households, which is three times as many as we had in 2008. We're facing a crisis. We're on a precipice. Are we about to rebuild our economy as just Amazon land with massive amounts of hedge fund capital and vulture capital swooping in and buying up bankrupt and hard up small businesses? Or are we going to find models, maybe even in other countries, of investing locally, preserving our some kind of semblance of democracy at the local level, at the economic level, and then begin a conversation about how we could reprioritize people versus profits in our society. If we can't find an audience for programming that talks about that in this moment, I'll hang up my spurs. You know, I probably won't. I keep trying. But, you know, this is the moment to give this particular exercise a try. Is it solutions? I'm not sure. I think it's Smart thinking. I think we're putting the public back into public affairs. We're not serving up solutions necessarily, but we are serving up ways to think about what new questions we need to raise and to remind ourselves that we're constantly making choices that bring us to where we are now. And I think it was Einstein that said, you know, we can't get ourselves out of the crisis with the same kind of thinking that got us into it. We're on the same page. I love what you do, Janine. And, you know, we'll just keep at it. I think that the one thing can be said about our generation is we don't stop. And I refuse to stop. So now we are going from being on satellite television, free speech TV and link TV, to being on public television stations all across the country and on YouTube. So people can still find us on YouTube and we have a podcast and a radio show playing on many of the same stations that carry Counterspin. But if you want to see the premiere every week, you go to the PBS World Channel and we premiere every Sunday, 11.30 a.m. Send a message that you appreciate this programming we are going to need you to. And if your station's, station's not so far playing our show, and you can find out from the little tracker on our website, ask them to. We need you. We don't have the well-paid PR and promotions outfit that, I don't know, Wall Street Week has. You say this launch on PBS is at this point an experiment, but it, it didn't just happen. There was a lot of work there. Are there particular barriers to getting that broader platform, that independent project space? It is almost insurmountable, Janine, and if it hadn't been for a lot of philanthropic support to make this leap, we would never have done it. You know, the, the dirty little secret of public television is that apart from a handful of programs, and I mean fewer than a handful, basically two thumbs worth, all of the content that you see on your local public television station, you've not only paid for through your taxes, but also probably through philanthropy because it's independently produced, independently funded, and independently distributed at a cost to the maker, which is to say a little outfit like mine. So 
it's not an ecosystem that is easy to penetrate, but it is one that I think needs fresh content. And if we're going to keep our public television system at all, in any shape at all, we need to watch it. We need to support it. We need to bring it some fresh programming. And maybe PBS World, which is also streaming online, could be some sort of future lifeboat for the system. Uh, it's getting a younger audience, more diverse audience, but they have no money for publicity. So we've talked about this before. There needs to be way more public investment, which is to say government investment in a non-commercial public television system. That would make it a whole lot easier for people like me to get on. But in the meantime, we do it by hook or by crook. And with a whole lot of contributions, we get nothing back, not a penny, not one. All right, then. We've been speaking with Laura Flanders. You can learn more about The Laura Flanders Show, including whether you can watch it on your local PBS station on the site, lauraflanders.org. Congratulations again, Laura, and thanks for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janina. Thanks for being there all the way. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.